Hello everyone, welcome to Borderlands session number seven. Specifically today we provide here in the podcast in the first part uh, the presentation and sharing from our guest speaker of today, who is Rahel Siewald, a PhD candidate in the University of Aberdeen. Um, she's working mainly in the field of Christian ethics and will be sharing with us uh, the topic related and titled The Pastor as Manager, the Church as Business, Exploring Leadership from a Theological Perspective. As an introduction to her text, um, she shares with us that we live in a time where it has become normal to look on activities inside and outside the church from the viewpoint of efficiency. We are used to talk about self-management, to build up leadership skills and teamwork, and to ask for the best and most efficient method to do things in order to reach more people in less time to make the most out of our resources. This way of thinking didn't stop at the doors of the church, but what does happen to the church if we think the pastor needs to become a better leader and churches should be managed, like the business next door. Together, we want to take time to understand the origins of our time as the age of management and ask how that has shaped and changed our understanding of being church. So welcome, everyone, to this first part of our session. And remember, we are having our live session on the last Tuesday of this month, which is uh, September 28, and we'll have the chance to discuss what we listen in this first part of the session and provide a wider group discussion. Remember to register on Eventbrite to receive the Zoom session for the live discussion with uh, our guest speaker. And you can also find more information from Borderlands uh, through Aberdeen Methodist Church. Welcome, and let us begin the conversation. Christian renewal of the Protestant state church in Germany. 
different pastors had visited the U.S. to find good examples for building healthy and flourishing churches. They also came to Chicago, where they visited Bill Heiberg Church. Fascinated by the lively congregation that was pursuing to reach people outside the church and seemed to be very successful in that, the German pastors wanted to invite Heibels as a guest speaker for a conference in Germany to find ways of renewing the declining German churches. Heibels came. It was a great success. And he came again and again. An official association called Willowcreek Germany was founded. Willowcreek conferences were held every year in Germany. Every second year, the main topic was leadership. The Willowcreek leadership conferences have up to 12,000 visitors which is a huge conference for the Christian scene in Germany. The audience is mixed of laypersons and full-time staff. These conferences can be understood best in relation to the Global Leadership Summit, hosted by the Willow Creek Association, a network that aims at helping to develop and train leaders. The 2021 conference was advertised, also here in the UK, with the following statement. Whether you're a business leader, CEO, pastor, teacher, nurse, student, artist, soldier, parent, doctor, volunteer, entrepreneur, or simply finding your place, you have influence. Every day you impact those around you through your influence, for better or worse. In both big and small ways, your leadership matters. When you invest in developing your leadership skills, you also give back to everyone around you. Not only do you thrive, but your family thrives, your business thrives, your church thrives, and your community thrives. Let's unpack this statement for a moment. This statement assumes that the success of an organization or social group is very much depending on the qualities of the leading person. Heibels would even say that the future of local congregations and of Christianity as a whole is depending on the leadership qualities of its members. In his book, Courageous Leadership, he states, the local church is the hope of the world and its future rests primarily in the hands of leaders. From a human perspective, the outcome of the redemptive drama playing out on planet Earth will be determined by how well church leaders lead. A second assumption is that leadership skills are techniques that function without a specific context. Whether you are a nurse, soldier or pastor, you all should come to the conference in order to become better leaders and finally change the world. For this reason, the conference speakers are also coming from all sorts of professional backgrounds, whether it's presidents like Jimmy Carter, Melinda and Bill Gates, the Microsoft founders, or a designer like Liz Bohannon. They all can teach us something about leadership. Leadership here is understood as a neutral concept that is useful in everyone's toolbox also in the toolbox of the pastor. This is the culture I was born into. Over the next two decades, leadership thinking had time to grow in Germany. The church I was part of was a Willow Creek partner. Our pastors, elders and lay staff would frequently visit the Willow conferences. I would read articles of Heibels that were coming monthly in a magazine to my parents. And the German artificial term Leiterschaft which is a direct translation of leadership, became part of my standard vocabulary. And 21 years later, when I began to visit a seminary to study theology in the middle of Germany, the question of how to be a good pastor was answered by stacks of mostly secular business leadership books. 
Sure, in our leadership course, we would sometimes search for biblical examples and mention that a pastor needs to pray and give good sermons. But when it came to the actual ministry in the congregation, next to being able to make a good exegesis of a Bible text and having some counseling skills, the main goal seemed to be becoming an efficient leader. I'm not alone with this experience. The theologian Kevin Van Hooser observes critically, too many pastors have exchanged their vocational birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Management skills, strategic plans, leadership courses, therapeutic techniques, and so forth. Congregations accept their pastors to have these qualifications. In these circumstances, it is hardly surprising that newly installed pastors so often complain that their seminaries failed to prepare them for the real work of ministry. Meanwhile, seminaries race to catch up um, to new expectations, reforming their curricula in ways that result in an even greater loss of theology in the church." End quote. I think what Van Huser brings out nicely is that congregations, seminaries, and pastors shape each other in how they think about what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be church. We all seem to have started to think about church as business that needs to be improved and managed. This is ideally initiated by a pastor that has a visionary leadership style motivating us all to work harder and better as a team toward our goals. The more I thought about that, the more I beca uh, became aware that the development I observed in Germany that was so tied up with my own biography is just one example of a wider phenomenon. To explore this will be the goal of the next couple of minutes. The church is not alone in taking up leadership theories. Basically, we could describe the last century as the century of leadership. One theory after the other has been published Large stacks of research are piling up, not only in the West, but there have been also developed certain theories of Eastern leadership. Most handbooks on leadership start by saying that it is impossible to list, let's not even speak about reading, everything that has been written on leadership. And they also acknowledge that it's very hard to really tell what we mean exactly when we say leadership. While there are attempts to trace back leadership theory through sociology and biology to the origins of the human race, there's a relatively broad consensus about the beginning of leadership theory as we know it, emerging from the theory of the great man in the 19th century. This theory rests on a lecture given by the Scottish author Thomas Carlyle in 1840. The title of Carlyle's lecture, Hero and Hero Worship, shows Carlyle's twofold goal. He wants to explore the nature of heroes, but also the phenomenon of hero worship. Remarkably, he aims not at describing a way of becoming the hero, which we might be interested to, but Carla makes, makes it clear that the goal for him and his listeners is to become hero worshippers. Through showing his listeners the different types of heroes who emerged throughout history, like Luther or Napoleon, he wants to train their perception to recognize the true heroes of their own times. Carlyle describes a substance that connects all heroes, a certain soul given by the divine. The most precious gift, he writes, that heaven can give to earth, um, a man of genius, as we call it, the soul of a man actually sent down from the skies with a God's message to us. End quote. Carlyle's her heroic souls take different shapes according to their times. The hero is God, as prophet, 
as poet, as priest, as man of letters, or as king. But they are all divinely given. They are not made, but born great. This is the basic claim of the great man theory. But Carlyle's theory is regarded as old-fashioned by most leadership theorists today. I think that the understanding of leaders being born, not made, is the statement that makes Carlyle unbearable for modern readers because it is unreconcilable with the age of management we are living in. We will understand this in looking on how Carlyle's theory was taken up by his successors. I have to admit that our next section will be very historical. We will take a look in a lot of primary sources that are mostly 100 years old. We do this because I'm convinced that the concepts of management and leadership have become so natural to us that it is hard for us to imagine that it could be different. But in order to find new ways to go forward as a church, we need to know where we turned away from the gospel and where we might need to repent. So I hope you bear with me through our historical journey in the next couple of minutes. In his book, Past and Present from 1843, Carlyle seems to add a seventh hero type to the other ones I already mentioned, the poet, the prophet. Amidst the progress of industrialization with its problematic conditions for the British working class, Carlyle asks again for the great men, and he addresses one group in particular, the leaders of industry, a virtual, are virtually the captains of the world. Carlyle is the first to coin the famous term captains of industry. This term is taken up 70 years later on the other side of the Atlantic by the founding father of management. Frederick Winslow Taylor. In the introduction of the book, The Principles of Scientific Management, published in 1910, Taylor turns Carlyle's theory upside down. He writes, in the past, the prevailing idea has been well expressed in the saying that captains of industry are born, not made. And the theory has been that if one could get the right man, methods could be safely left to him. In the future, it will be appreciated that our leaders must be trained right, as well as born right. In the past, the man has been first. In the future, the system must be first. This is in no sense, however, implies that great men are not needed. On the contrary, the first object of any good system must be that of developing first-class men." End quote. Both Carlyle and Taylor call for great captains of industry to arise. But whereas Carlyle encourages to wait for the great man, Taylor encourages his readers to train the great man that is needed. Even more, Taylor is convinced that good training will always succeed any natural talent. Carlyle and Taylor write their books against the backdrop of the same pressing question that became known as the labor problem. The question of labor came to public attention in the 1870s, with frequent strikes shaking industrial stability. Kaufman defines it as the deep-seated, broad-based struggle between capital and labor over the control of production and the distribution of the fruits thereof. This abstract description shouldn't veil that the labor question was arising around very practical problems, the lack of the fulfillment of the most basic human needs at work, pure water, toilets or food, long working hours, child labor, a lack of safety standards, a brutal hiring and firing system no security in cases of illness or accidents. The problem was that all the improvements needed would cost money and cause loss of productivity on the site of factory owners. It was therefore the firm belief 
that there could be at maximum a grudgingly peace between labor and factory owners, but no real solution of the fights. But Frederick Taylor promised to solve this problem. He writes, scientific management, on the contrary, has for its very foundation the firm conviction that the true interests of the two, capital and labor, are one and the same. That is possible to give the workman what he wants most, high wages, and the employer what he wants, a low labor cost. What happened is nothing less than an outstanding reframing of the labor question. Up to the early 1910s, the emphasis was on reducing conflict. Afterwards, the emphasis transitioned to reducing waste and inefficiency. From this perspective, conflict was only one of many dysfunctional outcomes that emanated from an imperfectly designed and operated organization. Taylor promises, if the industry would find ways to organize human labor in more efficient ways, productivity would be increased, which means wages would rise while factory owners would still earn more. Taylor therefore proposes to find the perfect way of doing a task. For example, by removing unnecessary movements and creating the right balance of leisure and work. The whole process of work, and Taylor speaking about rather simple tasks as carrying iron from one place to another, must be broken down in little steps, analyzed and perfected. As one can assume, this tracking, timekeeping and controlling needs a lot of time and energy. Taylor mentions that it needs eight men to oversee and control one man's work. These are the managers. It is not that there were no managers in the decades before Taylor's book, but with his theory, they get a much more powerful place in industry and overseeing and planning everything that is happening. Taylor's convictions that management is more than an art, but instead a science that can be studied and improved gained attention far beyond the industrial sector. According to Kaufman, an efficiency craze swept across the nation. Suddenly, efficiency societies sprouted up, universities started to form business schools and teach the new profession of management. Despite the success, the heirs of Taylor also recognized the downsides of Taylor's rigorous management practices. Again, Kaufman, a core group of his disciples, however, found Taylor's rather coercive and heavy-handed methods not only unattractive, but unproductive because they aroused antagonism and undercut cooperation. Furthermore, it soon became apparent that time study and numerous other scientific management practices had no objective one best way. This development is remarkable. Taylor's heirs basically observed that his scientific methods did not function and were met by the opposition of managers and workers likewise. Other methods were needed to solve the labor question. We could say that management turned away from engineering and science to psychology. Goodwill became the new keyword of this time, as in the title of John Common's book, Industrial Goodwill, that is by some praised as equally influential as Taylor's principles of scientific management. Common's is not opposed to the measurement systems of scientific management, but they cannot replace motivation on the side of labor. With Taylor, management was transformed from an art into a science. The outstanding thing in common and in the 1920s in general is that the leading position of managers was no longer justified through their scientific knowledge, but tied to a certain form of inspirational personality that would create in the worker the willingness to give their whole soul and energy 
for the good of the company. This type of personality is described more extensively by Oliver Sheldon in 1924. Where Taylor highlighted the importance of the manager-worker relationship, Sheldon adds a third person that is functioning as a link between both, the foreman. What exactly is the task of the foreman if, he's neither, if it's neither management nor work? Sheldon gives us a description. Foremanship is the supervision of work and the creation of a shop spirit as a result of a compelling leadership style. Leadership is that great incentive to work and loyalty which makes men put forth their best endeavor for the sake of something indefinable, which creates a team out of miscarriage of ability, which builds up a collective shop spirit in place of dissatisfaction and suspicion. End quote. The foreman has a quite interesting role that is maybe best captured in the word motivation. And for this task, Sheldon introduces the term leadership. Leadership is here understood not as technical expertise, it is also not scientific work or ability. Leadership is the ability to motivate others to give their best. Where is such a charismatic personality to be found? Sheldon answers his own question. We may wait for him to come or we may manufacture him. Unless we adopt the latter alternative, we may wait in vain. It should be pretty clear that the crucial turning point from Carlyle to our age was that the leader is no longer perceived as having a God-given, natural or inherited greatness. The interesting point is that with leaving Carlyle behind, leadership theory became not a highly calculated, sober account of how to manage human beings, but the visionary leader that creates team spirit is now tied into managerial leadership. After the early beginnings with Frederick Winslow Taylor and his successors, management had a second big height in the 1980s. It is often known for its emphasis on excellence, a term that frequently comes up in the sector of education. Human resource management or the new wave management, which is the important overall discipline for understanding leadership from the managerial side, was founded in the 1980s. But with Bruce Kaufman, I want to argue that human resource management studies grew out of the early management theories we have seen in Taylor, Commons, and Sheldon. They had a whole century to shape the ways we think, live, organize, work, work and understand church. According to Bernd Vanwich, managerial thinking has become our second skin, too close for us to see. Why became management such a convincing system for us? Taylor himself tells us the birth story of management. Resources are scarce. Therefore, everything has to be done to manage human work better so that the single worker becomes more productive. This was understandably resisted by labor because if you do your job more efficient, it means that over the long term, you are not needed anymore because one person can work for two, etc. Taylor has foreseen this problem, but explains, if products are produced in less time, they can be sold cheaper. Consequently, people can buy more of it, two pair of shoes instead of one in a year, which means you can hire more people. That means the whole Taylorist system relies on a consumer society with a growing economy. This obviously doesn't make any sense when you want to reduce waste and protect your resources. This is one of the hints that managerialism is a quasi-religious concept that convinces us despite its incoherence. We simply cannot imagine how the world would be without it. 
we can see that in other places of our lives as well, might it be schools, universities, hospitals or politics. Management and especially leadership has become a standard way of describing our life together. Let's again turn to Bill Hybels and his book, Courageous Leadership. He writes, leadership development never happens accidentally. It only happens when some leader has a bi-top vision, when his or her pulse rate doubles at the very thought of pumping into the organization a steady stream of competent leaders. Before we developed a clear vision of leadership development at Willow, we fell into the trap that catches many churches, the trap of urgent demands. We rarely paused long enough to wonder about future leaders. How will, how will we identify them? Who will develop them? End quote. Hylos believes that leadership is something that can and must be developed strategically, as Taylor would do it, driven by a great visionary personality, as Sheldon would suggest, and it works on the logic of scarcity. If the church will not provide its own leaders in time, it loses itself and its place in the redemptive drama of God. If we remember the reason for the German pastors to seek for new inspiring church models, it was that they understood themselves as part of, declining, of a declining church. Similar to Taylor, who understands himself as standing in an age of scarcity, many churches seem to be pushed by their fear of losing members and dying congregations toward managerial techniques. I speak to you about this topic in the very midst of my ongoing doctoral project. And so I still have a way to go when it comes to the question of how exactly leadership and management thinking are changing the church. For this reason, I just want to share some thoughts at the end that can be more understood as an invitation for further discussion. First, management is evolving around the language of scarcity. As church, we believe in the spirit giving the church the gifts it needs. The psalmist is reminding us in Psalm 33, verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And in the Sermon on of the Mount, we are encouraged to not waste our lives in worrying about tomorrow. Management is not believing in abundance, but in managing scarce resources. I think we have to relearn what it means to plan the future trusting God, but without worrying about the existence and impact of the church. Second, management is at its heart a struggle about who's in control. I might understand that there are events I cannot control, but what about the ones I can? I suggest that this can happen in two directions. On the one side, by controlling more strictly those who are weaker. I think this is the story of labor we have looked at. Management was from the beginning embedded in the power struggle between labor and capital. And as much power labor was able to generate time and again through strikes and unions, it is also a class struggle with its power imbalances. This power imbalance creates differing possibilities to resist managerial techniques. Human beings became the disruptive factor of the smoothly running factory and had to be controlled as much as possible. On the other hand, Robert Jackal, in his analysis of top management, discovered that manage managers, because of their awareness of the unpredictability of their environment, try even harder through enhanced planning and long hours in the office to control their lives or the lives of their factories. The credo seems to be, if you can control nothing, then at least you can control yourself. Above all, one must learn to streamline oneself shamelessly, learn to wear all the right masks, learn all the proper vocabularies of discourse, 
get to know all the right people and cult cultivate the subtleties of the art of self-cremation. One can then sit tight and wait for things to happen. This streamlining of the self rests, according to Jacquel, on the myth that hard work always brings about success in the managerial hierarchy, whereas Jacquel thinks that at certain levels of top management, it is only personality and luck that is behind promotions. Probably we could say that with the outsourcing of factory labor into other parts of the world, the second form of exercising control over oneself is the more popular in the West, and to a degree also the more relevant for pastoring. Commonly, the pastor is consuming the management leadership literature and then disciplines herself to reach success. Control remains the credo, and it is either exercised on those who are weaker or on oneself, as the least one can do. Being member of the church does mean that we are aware that we are not controlling everything, but that the spirit is in control. I think we have to relearn what it means to be open for the lead of the spirit coming up in surprising ways and through different members of the congregation. Third and last. There seems an element in modern leadership theory that sees the leader in the role of the one convincing and motivating the rest of the congregation. That has in many places influenced our mode of preaching. The problem for a theological point of, from a theological point of view seems here to me that it sets the preacher or pastor against the congregation. He or she has his own vision that the congregation needs to be convinced of. There's no element of finding ways together. Instead of being the first listener to the word of God, the pastor or preacher becomes the one communicating, convincing and motivating a slothful congregation. An example of a somewhat different understanding can be found in the pastoral rule written roughly 1,400 years ago. The author, Gregory the Great, is pondering Exodus 18. This chapter, where Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, advises him to find able men that can serve as elders or leaders responsible for smaller groups of the people of Israel, is often used as an example of how we can justify leadership theories in the context of the church. Is Moses not clearly showing here that it is good to have an organizational structure of leaders? Gregory observes something else. He writes, Thus, Moses, who spoke with God, is judged by the reproof of Yitro, because he wasted his energy on the earthly needs of the people. At the same time, he is advised to appoint others in his place to resolve earthly disputes, so that he would be free to consider the spiritu spiritual mysteries for the instruction of the people. End quote. Gregory discovers in this passage an example for the pastor, not as an organizational pattern, but in understanding that the specific task of the pastor is to study and to be familiar with scripture and immersed into prayer. It's not that the pastor is the better person naturally or in himself, but that in setting aside time for concentrating on God's word, he sees things that become important for the whole congregation. Gregory thus understands the pastor as the eyes of the congregation. The more he's concerned with external matters, the more the eyes of the church become covered with dust. This is an alternative understanding of what it means to be pastor, being not a leader but a listener and contemplator. This is not an answer to the whole question of leadership, but pointing towards the idea that we need to immerse ourselves again in a conversation with our own Christian tradition about what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be church. 
Pearson seems that it has become more natural for us to consult the businessmen next door than those who traveled the path as a church before us. As I said, these are only theological starting points, and we need to think further about how it would change our thinking about church and ministry if we see ourselves placed in an abundant creation where the Spirit leads the church through all the gifts present in a congregation in ever new and surprising ways, when the pastor and congregation are listening to the one word there to help us to be faithful today as it helped those before us. What I'm particularly interested in is that, that history of, the, of the, the study of management and the way it had changed focus from its initial um, focus on, on labour relations to its um, to, to focus on, on efficiency for mutual gain of labour and management and then its, its sort of psychological focus and that, that, that's the, the shifts. What, what one, of the, one of the things that really struck me um, from listening to the podcast um, that gave a context for a lot of other things that I hadn't thought about before. Thank you very much, James. I don't know if someone else uh, would like to engage, listen, or to comment. This will be the time before engaging directly. Uh, also, maybe Vahil can react at any point on any of these comments or feedback. What I found really interesting, it's um, the question of how it relates with how the, the different approach with, with church um, challenges or impacts in a different way. What, how do we approach service? So how it ends up really changing the, the way that we engage with each other in terms of building community and serving each other um, because on, on the management uh, understanding and way uh, so often it's a lot about uh, gaining something from from it or looking for a profit or looking for gaining what something um, um, either material or either economical um, and how it contrasts technically to what the church community is in terms of um, learning that the service and the pastoral exchanges and roles uh, doesn't have to be about getting anything from it. So, so the impact on how do we build community and how do we serve each other as kind of as an outcome from what Rahel is working and researching on. I don't know if someone else would like to engage. We we are too quiet tonight. I've got a question for the teachers. I, I mean, uh, and those who worked in in education, because um, Rahel made some interesting parallels between uh, management in industry and management in in the church. But uh, but it made me wonder. So Carol, Brittany, and um, Colin, but your, your involvement in in education, whether you felt that there were echoes there of how. So industrial approaches to management have been imported into schools and, and universities. 
Not biting. But also the the question on how it relates with uh, some of us are in the role as, as as pastors or preachers in our circuit. So also how does that impact uh, which um, Sarah, Carol, James, or even myself, we could engage from that perspective. So the, there are many ways to approach the topic as an like from industry, from being in the role of teachers or from being in the role of sharing and building um, the liturgical life of our community of faith. So from all this being said, and maybe to continue um, handling or maintaining the conversation. I don't know if also Rahel would like to react of anything of what we have shared so far, if we actually got what she's working on, or if there might be something relevant to be added um, from her work and perspective. Yeah, thank you so much um, for having me here tonight. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Thanks for the invitation. And if I'm sometimes looking weird, I'm in the same room as Sam. So sometimes I just look at him <laughs> while he's talking. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for your observations so far. I think your last question, James, was really um, spot on because something that only became gradually aware to me in my research. I was really starting out with this focus on church um, and then and just with the term leadership. And then I discovered more and more oh, it really hangs together with management. And when I started researching management, it became clear to me that there was there's really books and research on, especially um, in the UK, how in the 1980s, management kind of took over in all sorts of areas of life. So one typical example is the NHS that started to have like huge, um, I don't know, managerial um, uh, organizational patterns where before like maybe medical staff had um, served on certain issues. Now it was the manager or another famous example is um, in universities in the United States um, where <laughs> um, universities in the United States where the numbers of students in the last decades really got higher and higher and also the numbers of professors but um, more than any other like staff numbers um, the just administration and managerial sector would rise and rise and I think that's some really interesting um, way to enter this topic when you think about your own like maybe work life and backgrounds where you maybe have observed how we now have managers in positions where before people um, just worked with their own professional backgrounds. So I think this question about where that happened, for example, in the educational sector and this, I mentioned that in the podcast as well, that a keyword like excellence <laughs> is always a good thing to watch out because it totally belongs in this whole like leadership management realm. So I'm really excited to hear where you maybe have spotted similar um, developments that I observed in my own context in Germany for the church, maybe in your own professional background or just from having kids in school or whatever. Um, yeah, so so far to that point. Um, and I think the other thing, James, what you mentioned was this like, um, how like 
management and psychology became intertwined. And I just reflected on that today with a friend that I think really a key word here is motivation and the idea that we want to move people. And I think that happens in management, but that also happens in certain ideas of psychology and having a motivational speaker. And I think that becomes super interesting for reflecting on our life together as community, as I mentioned it, to wonder, do we really treat people as people or do we just want to move them somewhere um, and that can become yeah I think a danger for all sorts of speech we we use and it often sounds good because it sounds like as if it would be for a good reason but very quickly people then can be, become tools instead of ends in themselves and uh, I'm yeah happy to hear yeah your questions and thoughts on all these topics Thank you very much, Rahel, for um, expanding a bit uh, the perspective of your whole work and the relevance of it um, on the specific context and the concreteness of from where you're working um, in the context of Germany and where you're doing your research here in the UK. Um, it also um, became uh, relevant to me on, on terms of the motivational or coaching uh, perspective that also we as Abri Methodist, we have been working on, on discipleship for a few weeks um, on the previous months and, and could be interesting or overlapping in some points into how do we contrast approach, um, grow together or recognize or move forward into what's our understanding of discipleship in terms of uh, followers of Christ and followers of each other and learning from each other from Christian faith and what would be or could be the contrast contrast there in terms of uh, motivational or, or coaching perspective um, which is what we uh, get in the public sphere a lot on this con this constant um, perspective on the public life which uh, develops or it's based a lot uh, not only on excellence itself but also on the performing and the constant understanding of merit uh, so uh, meritocracy and how do we achieve and understand life or approach life and how do we um, become satisfied with what we do and what would that be contrasting in terms of our Christian life um, or how does it relate with our Christian life faith and journey and with building community um, from a faith perspective. Um, so I will shut up now to leave space to others to continue sharing, engaging, or commenting. Space is open. Uh, it seem, seems to me that um, the rise of managerialism is, is closely correlated with the way the move away from the role of the state. Um, under a state system, there is a responsibility for societal good or welfare. With the move towards the market, it becomes much more a question of the management, the efficient management of economic or material resources. Um, so you're not, you're more concerned under a managerial system with maximizing individual welfare or the welfare of the collective enterprise. 
whereas under the state there is a responsibility for common goods and common welfare and the provision of goods which contribute to welfare. So maybe the transfer of managerialism into, into church life is more difficult because we are principally concerned with collective welfare, not individual welfare maximization. So I think maybe we need to be clear on what it is we're trying to manage efficiently if we apply some of these principles in a, in a church or a, uh, context. Obviously, there is a side to it to do with efficient management of, of resources in a narrow financial sense, but church is much more than that. <laughs> um, so I don't know, I'm rambling a bit, um, not really raising any questions, but maybe someone will strongly disagree with what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Colin. Uh, I think it's it's really interesting and maybe Rahel can help us to understand more from, from her own context and background on this possible relation and tension in terms of history and or how she approaches her topic today. Uh, so we got from Colin a bit on the uh, correlation with the rule of the state, market and enterprise, and the differences of the welfare in terms of the church community and the management um, understanding in, in, into the public life. Um, in addition to what we had from Colin, also we got here in the chat uh, a comment in terms of management on how it varies considerably. Um, on being more happier when working collaboratively than being told uh, what to do without giving um, the specific re respect to the ideas of the individual. So controlling leaders can move a school forward in terms of the background of teaching, but it's not necessarily sustainable when the strong leader lives. So I don't know, Rahel, if you could share a bit with, with us into this kind of a structural approach on, on what you're working on in terms of background, but also into how it impacts or relates uh, in terms of the horizontal, vertical uh, relation, human relations, relations into your own um, topic and theological contribution. Yeah, thanks again. And um, yeah, I think the topic Colin has kind of brought us to is obviously um, a huge topic like um, touching on many questions about yeah state and economics um, belong together today but one thing that came to my mind immediately is um, uh, again a historical um, turn and if you remember I kind of rooted the um, origin of management in the like labor movements and the labor problem and that was um, in the 19th century, a huge question of how to um, cope with the like vast um, numbers of workers that uh, had like not a lot of income, like horrible living conditions, horrible working conditions. And it was a question in Russia, in Europe and in the States at the same time. And obviously what is interesting is to see how these different countries approached the question differently. And one thing that came to my mind in relation to what Colin said about um, asking for a common good versus just individual gain 
is that it's very interesting to see that in the beginning of the 20th century in the States where management as a science was born, um, the idea was um, we can save the labor question, this conflict between labor and capital, um, when we rise individual like incomes and everyone has more money and everyone will be more happy and there will be less conflict. There was this very easy <laughs> solution. Um, and I just read the last weeks um, uh, up on the situation in Europe, which was slightly different because labor movements in Europe, and I know Europe is the last term, I would say what I read in, in Germany and France, Italy and UK, for example, were much more interested in finding common solutions. They said like, okay, we need a, need a better public school system. We need um, theater events that would not cost a lot of money and enable people to participate in culture. We need um, places where people can come together and meet. And it was obviously also about housing conditions. But what I found fascinating was that they more they were more looking, and I don't want to idealize, idealize Europe here, but there was obviously a difference between asking for how can we be a better society um, and how can we tackle this labor question as a community versus the idea in the USA that was where workers also came together, together as a movement, but the idea was we come together so that everyone individually has more in the end and is individually more happy. <laughs> and I think this approach kind of won in the long end. And it's, it's interesting because it comes kind of back to us in certain ideas of church that um, are, for example, like under the concept of purpose-driven church or that the idea that church individually makes me more happy instead of asking like what sort of community can we be and I know that's very broad maybe but I think there's definitely something to it um that the the idea of of state and of community should be asking asking for a common good and that we have a tendency today maybe in neoliberal societies understanding good as something that I get individually and that obviously becomes problematic because then it becomes more if we if we bring that to church then congregation is more like many individuals who individually come on sunday to receive something for themselves and then maybe the question of sustainability that was raised here <laughs> ties into that i don't know if that was helpful i'm please ask me if something is not not clear i, I think there are two very interesting um elements to that. One is the, the, the individual versus the collective good that, that Colin raised and you're unpacking there. And then the, the idea that the collective good isn't necessarily just the sum of all the individual goods. Mm -hmm. um, it implies that to an extent, to achieve a collective good, we might have to give up some of our individual goods in order for, for, for everybody to, to flourish. I might not always get to sing the hymns that I want um, because Carol doesn't like the same hymns as me. Um, so for the collective good, I need to sacrifice something of myself. Um, but there's also the, um, the distinction you, you made earlier on about treating people as means or as ends. Um, and that in order to, to treat people 
as people. We need to treat them as, as ends in themselves and not just a tool to, mm. to achieve something else. And I'm wondering whether these two things come into conflict a bit, that, that to, to achieve a common good, we need to see people as a means to the common good mm-hmm. and not just an end in themselves. But and that makes me wonder whether th- the theological language, the language of the cross comes into play here, that there's a contradiction that we can't untangle unless we start to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the way that he um, gave up something of his own ends for the common good. I don't know, that, 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 that's the train of thought you set me on. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for that. Yeah, I was just thinking when you said that the idea that we have maybe to give something up of us Selves, I think that's, I mean, if we bring it back to terms like discipleship or sanctification, I think that's totally what, uh, like turning to something that goes beyond me, which would be a community, would totally be, I mean, if we really take sin, for example, with Luther also as this turning in on myself and that I'm just concerned with myself, um, it would be one way to learn together and give up on myself and maybe and yeah I said that to you already in the podcast that I'm also still like uh, in many processes and I'm not there but just what you said to the means and ends I read today two different um, theologians from very different times and I already mentioned one of um, them in the podcast Gregory the Great who was just talking about preaching and he said preaching is a very difficult task because you want to speak to so many people at the same time, which have all sorts of different problems. And then you speak, for example, about humility, but there's a person that maybe already thinks very, very low of herself and she gets it wrong and she wouldn't need another word. And <laughs> he says like, it's always much more easier to, to speak with the per- people one-on-one and really listen to what is maybe the word they need at the moment. But then he goes on and gives like a hundred pages on how you still can succeed in preaching. <laughs> but the interesting point is that you really hear how he thinks about the problems of the different people and thinks, yeah, they, they need different words from the Bible and different sorts of encouragement. And then I read um, a theologian um, from the US who is like famous for being one of the four first people who really understood preaching more in terms of motivation and reaching people and their personalities and being a personality and what I found so interesting is that he also reflected oh you have maybe people in your congregation that want to have more like something intellectual on Sundays and then you have people who more want like a good like image so that they really attached in their emotions and he reflects we could say on the same as Gregory the Great this idea of like oh how can you speak to so many people at the same time and then he says like, okay, to to really reach that goal, you have to spend time with your people during the week. And I was thinking about that and thought like, it sounds so similar because both reflect on how can I speak to so many different people? But I felt that there's a difference because Gregory is really thinking about this counseling situation and maybe this like, you James maybe mentioned that we, if we don't want to treat people just as 
means we really have to sit with them and listen and see them as individual people, but with the idea that God wants to change them. So I just, it's, and I think that comes together, you know, when we really are together on the way of Jesus, we sometimes will hear hard words from each other because we need to change, but that can happen in these counseling situations where I really listen to the other person. And what I found so interesting about the preacher or the theologian thinking about preaching, preaching from the 19th century in the US was that he said like, I spent, I spent time with my people so that my sermon on Sunday is good. <laughs> and I was thinking it's, he, he has like almost a good goal, like giving a good sermon and still this time with his people becomes a means to that end. And I don't know if that is helpful or too abstract, but I was thinking like, it's, yeah, that's where I still wonder what, what does it really mean to be a pastor? But um, I found it interesting because he was thinking so much about psychology and motivation. And I was thinking like, maybe it's he, he's already mixing up things there, um, but you can come back <laughs> on that. Well, it'd be interesting to hear from some of the other preachers present how they feel about those balances. <laughs> yes, Carol. Or Carol. Okay, but I'm thinking as, uh, as a local preacher, you're very limited in your knowledge of the congregation. You just generally know things, but not brilliantly. Sorry. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Carol, I mean, uh, that's uh, interesting and challenging, isn't it, in terms of how much do we engage, mm -hmm. how much do we listen, and the limitations that that brings mm -hmm. on the experience in our circuit itself, uh, which it's it's pretty interesting uh, from, from the side of, of preaching to the community. Um, but Sarah wanted us to... I was just going to say the same as Carol. We often go to churches where we don't know our congregations at all or very little. And because that's when we just rely on the Lord to guide us and the Holy Spirit to speak through what we say because we don't know the people we are addressing. Sometimes um, when... Uh when ministers are very aware of uh, all the different uh, views that people have on the type of service that we should have and the type of hymns that we should sing, um, we can end up moving to a point where uh, the service is a bit like a bag of licorice all sorts or um, remember the, uh, the tubes of uh, fruit pastels. Now, I, I like the black ones and uh, no doubt somebody else likes the red ones but uh, you you end up with this slightly um, unsatisfactory outcome where where no one can ever go to a service and f come away feeling completely happy about it thank you thank you sarah nigel and carol and this is very interesting rahel i don't know how much you could engage a bit with us on that in terms of um, from 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 the monastic experience, I always insist on learning, on on, on wasting time together, and 
in this wasting time together, how much that brings off uh, certainly in our, knowing ourselves, uh, but so often knowing ourselves more than what we are used to, isn't it? And it uh, what what could be there, the, the tensions, or what can we learn, or what could be uh, the theological reflection and contributions uh, from um, the relevant research that you are doing in terms of is what Nigel is uh, saying in experiencing and building community. Um, when we just gather ourselves and then we get so used to each other maybe, and then we end up again kind of with this sense of unsatisfaction, what what's uh, what could be the, the the relation in terms of motivation or human experience or um, uh, the ten, the tensions itself into um, on one opposite side of uh, the complete individualistic experience where we don't know anything of each other or the other side of the human experience of being closely together knowing each other uh, deeply um, and the challenges that just Nigel shared a bit. Uh, I don't know if I explained myself, but uh, we can just flow on the conversation. It raises an interesting liturgical question of what, what is there in liturgy that enables us to learn that Nigel likes the black fruit pastels and Bob might like the, the red fruit, fruit pastels. Um, how, how is there something about about being together in, in a, the context of a church that enables us to to enter into community and find these things out about each other. Um, which may depend on, on somebody being the leader, which, which might happen despite somebody trying to be the leader. a bit tangential to that question, James, but um, I think one of the dangers of trying to import managerial practice into church life is that the emphasis on, in management is always on measuring performance and getting quantifiable indicators so the number of people that attend the service on a Sunday, etc. But as Sarah was saying, we don't know the outcomes of Christian preaching or Christian fellowship. So there might be a danger if we go too far down the managerial road. We focus entirely on trying to measure the outcomes as an indicator of impact. And I think what Sarah was hinting at is that that's not something for us to, to make a judgment on. We don't know the impact of Christian preaching and Christian fellowship. We don't fully know it, um, but maybe that's a bit off the point you're making. But. Well, I mean, I, I think this is a really interesting question um, because um, if you don't measure anything or you don't make some kind of uh, even qualitative or uh, evaluations of what's going on, mm -hmm. 
how do you ever decide whether anything that you're doing you know is is helpful or beneficial or mm -hmm. progressing in any kind of way mm -hmm. yeah i i sympathize with that point uh but the follow-on question would be, what would be the sort of indicators that one could use? They need to be re related to the objectives. I'm reminded of uh, uh, one of those books that changed education by uh, Black and William called In Inside the Back Black Box, which was about um, formative assessment, where the black box was a, the, the, the child's head. Um, and the, 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 you have the inputs of what's being taught and the outputs of the exam results. And what Black and William were, were interested in was assessing what was going on in the thinking in, in, a, in a formative way, rather than just looking at the, the, in, the, the inputs and the outputs. And I suppose that the, the, we have an industrial model of this black box, don't we? That the inputs have a direct correlation with with outputs. And I suppose either 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 a prejudice or an insight. I'm not sure which. As a, as a music teacher, that um, as opposed to a maths teacher, maybe I expect some flack from Jackie on, on, on in a moment on this one. That that's the. The, the outputs might be more diffuse and unpredictable from the inputs in in music, right? where you're looking for some creative outputs. Yeah, you have a lesson objective of the children will be creative, well, you can't really predict how they're going to be creative, because if you can predict it, they're not being creative. Um, and I, I wonder whether church is similar, that you can see there are inputs and you, as Nigel is observing, there, there, need, there needs to be some some sort of outputs. Um, otherwise, perhaps we're all wasting our time. Um, but what we might want to challenge is the direct correlation between input and output. And, and perhaps the, the correlation in time as well. We might, we, we might absor absorb half a lifetime's worth of sermons before the situation arises when by God's grace we we, we, we respond. So there's a black box, the innards of which we might need to um, to leave to faith. Uh, shall I? <laughs> Thank you so much for the comments. I think they they are really 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 helpful um, because I think that two very different questions behind that and I think the first one is what James touched on the question of the pos possibility of measurement and I think that was what I found kind of interesting in the history of management as well that very early on it became clear okay the full measurement of everything like timekeeping and observing every step becomes inefficient in itself and it's not really possible and I think sometimes in our world we tend to overestimate estimate the possibility of measurement and that I think in what you just described James with the like input output correlation but in general like the ability to we cannot control everything <laughs> and 
but we, yeah, I think that's where we have to ask ourselves, where is it possible at all? And the other thing I think Colin touched on is the question of, yeah, what do we measure? And I think that's interesting because the managerial view very often com comes with the idea of that growth is always better. And I think that's what I kind of tried to hint at the end of my podcast on that if growth is always better, that's really challenging in an age where the church is getting smaller and smaller in numbers. And the question is, um, is um, so when we, maybe actually we have to think about what, what are the ends of the church <laughs> and only then we can say, what do we want to measure and what are the objectives we are looking for? And for example, um, a counter view would be um, the American theologian Stanley Hauerwas who would say like, um, yeah, sure, the church was for 1,500 years in the West like the big institution, but very often it was just tied up into the state and into state violence. And actually that the church is shrinking again and becomes more of a minority reminds of us as Christians um, who we are and reconnects us more to, to the early church. And I don't want to say that's absolutely right, but that's another perspective on church decline. And I think it's so in, it's so interesting because if we speak about measurements, we cannot say that a growing church is necessarily like doing a good job. That's just not growing numbers is not a valid measurement for church. You can, <laughs> but maybe you have another view on that. And I would be absolutely delighted to hear your take on what you think, what we are looking for as a church or what would be valuable to, to count as measurements. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, um, Rahel. Thank you everyone for how this conversation, conversation has flowed uh, so far in terms of evaluation, uh, progress, growing. Uh, all sort of questions of measurement. Um, uh, I think also Julie has a question over there um, that we can continue following either if it changes a bit the topic or if it follows up um, related to the same. Uh, thank you, Rahul. Um, I, I was going to ask a question. Um, my, some of my interest in, in disability in theology um has me curious uh to think about um if you might have anything to share or thoughts on your take on leadership in relation to um i suppose how we how the church maybe or society often thinks about disability in relation to leadership which um might not even often at all think of them in connection. And I'm, I'd be curious someday to, to hear more about how, um, how, uh, yeah, what your take on, on leadership might say uh, about the body of Christ in a, which is including uh, varying abilities and such. Sorry, my question wasn't very clear. But say what you want. Um, yeah, I think I have to think <laughs> about it. But um, I'm happy for you to uh, 
coming from your topic on that. But um, I think one, and we haven't really talked about that so far because I think we can define, there may be two ways I've seen in churches um, how we can talk about leadership. And one is just the idea, okay, we have one or a few leaders who just guide the church. And I think the tricky thing with that is that we always expect that God is kind of leading the, the church through them and that we have very like strict hierarchies and are like this top performer at the front who gives us the vision and has, yeah, I think performance already was a word we used here. Um, and the other thing is, um, and it depends on your church background, if you have experienced that, is the idea where discipleship and leadership becomes very um, closely connected. And it's the idea of, uh, oh, everyone can and should be a leader um, and everyone should influence uh, his or her surroundings. And um, that even becomes, it's interesting because I think commonly I would connect the topic leadership with mega church movements in the US or like I have for example mentioned Willow Creek in my podcast but um, there are also like small cell group house church movements which use the term leadership and strategic planning and um, vision statements mission statements a lot because the idea is everyone has to become a leader in the long run and that can of course, and that maybe is, I don't know if you are hinting at that, Julie, <laughs> because that can produce a very like static version of what of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple, like being this person, I don't know, who um, can lead a group somewhere, who has a like vision, who's able to speak at the stage or whatever. And that obviously gives us a... Mm, or the problem with that is that we might overlook a lot of different gifts um, God has given to the church and exclude and would exclude obviously people um, with other gifts or with certain disabilities from really be fully being fully part of the body if we tie up leadership and discipleship so strongly and almost make this like reaching leadership like a ladder you could climb in the church. But Julian, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your response. I know my question was a bit of a mumble, so I thought that was really helpful. Thank you very much, Julie, because um, this question has taken us also to this tension uh, of discipleship and leadership. Uh, uh, what comes to my mind is, is just going back to, to the gospel and, and the experience of Christ himself. Um, how much does Christ does not fit on this understanding of leadership that it comes out of, of this understanding of life and church and, and communities in it like uh, Christ is a failure for leadership uh, in this understanding of leadership Christ failed on most of these parameters and ways of life um, on the point that he ended up uh, being alone uh, not followed um, uh, and he was deserted by his own friends. So, so um, it, it brought me this sort of reflection of the, the own experience of, of uh, from the approach of, of the gospel itself. Uh, but let me just go back to uh, people here around us in the session. Uh, there's a question from um, Marty and Britt. 
Uh, hey, voice from the darkness. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, I'm just uh, enjoying following the discussion, but I would really love to hear you comment a bit about um, the analogy uh, or the relation at all between leadership and the host of other terms we get from the scriptures uh, for the pastorate, the priesthood, the ministry, shepherd, um, guide, you know, uh, prophet, all sorts of different language that um, seems to stretch and push at uh, even the most um, creative concept of leadership that we can grab from the business or corporate or economic world. So I'm wondering how you might um, negotiate the tension there between um, management of a group of people who live in the world and shepherding the people who are called to and very weird and difficult language to capture proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Thanks, Martin. You're kind of reading my mind. I just thought that I would like to give this sort of question back to the to us all, <laughs> but I can <laughs> speak a little bit about that first. Um, because I think it's the interesting thing is um that the interesting thing with the term leadership is that we are not really able to define it. I've read books and books and books, and there are many authors who would say like um leadership is just something what we have to see. We we know it when we see it, but we can't it's it's really hard to describe it at all. And that's what it also, I think that it is part of why it is so problematic because you can just fit everything into it. Um, and, but interestingly, I think from, from the Christian tradition and from scripture, um, how it is defined or how pastoring is defined. And I, I hope to do a lot more work on that in the next uh, two years is very often by, as you said, by ways of analogy. And for example, I think the most common term would be the shepherd, which kind of, I think would, for example, question the idea, which I pointed earlier at, that I just spend time with my people so that my sermon gets good on Sunday, then the sermon almost, almost becomes the high point of the week, which I think very often fits Protestant traditions, which make the sermon the high point of the liturgy <laughs> or the service. And then, yeah, maybe this like idea of pastoring being there for people um, is not enough on the forefront. Another idea that is very common in, in the Christian tradition is the idea of the abbot in the monastery or the pastor as the physician. So someone who's really taking care of sick um, souls or and then sin is defined as sickness or something that needs to be treated. And what I found so interesting about that um, when I was reflecting on that this week was that in some sense, the manager and the physician both deal with problems. You know, you go to the physician when you are sick um, and the manager obviously <laughs> wants to solve problems so that the machine, that the system can run smoothly. But I was wondering um, if there's still um, a difference if I understand myself as a pastor or physician that expects people to come <laughs> with problems and that I then treat them more holistic and as an, and here we are again, as an end in themselves, someone to, that needs to be seen and healed 
Um, whereas when I think in managerial terms, I see more the system and then the person having a problem or causing a problem is someone or something that needs to be removed. Um, and I just make this point to say, like, I think it really shapes our way of being church and being pastor, how we think or which ana analogy we use. Um, but I'm happy to give this question back to the round. Um, if you have other like analogies or images um, from scripture or um, other sources where you think that might be a more helpful and more substantial term to say what pastoring or ministry means in the church versus just managerial uh, ideas. Yes, Sarah. The image that came to my mind was Jesus as servant rather than leader and rather than somewhere up there on the platform, it's somebody who's hoovering the carpet or washing the dishes. And so Jesus spoke very much about um, things like the last will be first, the first will be last. And Jesus was very much the servant of all. I don't know if someone else has uh, another uh, feedback or something else differently. Another analogy or example that came to our minds for experiences. All right, not to redirect, but just, I would be curious from a, your historical research, Rachel, um, have you encountered uh, sort of this is just a suspicion, but I would suspect the older uh, traditions would not follow the such buy-in into the leadership discourse. So I was wondering if you'd found any sort of evidence to, for instance, uh, Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran uh, uh, engagements with this um, alongside the kind of evangelical traditions embrace of this kind of leadership language. Um, I think that's still something I have to uh, I have to explore more closely and I think I think different churches and different church denominations have um, are to by varying degrees um, affected by the problem I described in my podcast but what I find at the moment is that Anglican theologians say we see the problem in our church and um, are pushing against that. I see the German Protestant church, which would be Lutheran or Reformed church. Um, they, in the early 2000s, they asked um, the big like company McKinsey to um, evaluate the German Protestant state church for its market value. <laughs> so um, I, I think, uh, so that's still a gap in my research to, to look on how would other theologians today from maybe Lutheran, from Methodist perspective, <laughs> um, describe church or pastoring. Um, but I think on the ground, we really see it in very different churches coming up, um, not to this extreme extent, I would as in very often the evangelical world with this like, 
really unquestioned visionary leadership type. Um, yeah, that's what I can can say so far. And I think to me, I still wonder if this like this shared story of the church's decline is maybe why so many different churches pick up on it. But uh, I have to explore that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can also come in on that if you have ideas. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't have any ideas that it, it, uh, it's currently your your baby, not mine. But my hunch is, um, I don't know. It seems like where there's where there's a liturgical um, place set up where the sacraments are the center of worship and not proclamation uh, or um, management or kind of, but where it's sort of it's already other oriented towards uh, a means which is call it otherworldly or something, whichever view you want. Um, that there would be some kind of internal check to the life of the church itself. I find these, this conversation uh, very relevant, not only in terms of uh, contrasting liturgical traditions, but also when you uh, move geographically um, uh, in different latitudes of the experience of the church. And, and it brings a lot of insights uh, really well in terms of uh, the colonizing processes uh, uh, everywhere, uh, speaking from, from Mexico, um, how it overlaps also uh, not only with pow power relations, but how these power relations is spread uh, in a structural way and it impacts in terms of, of gender and economical inequalities. And, and it goes all the way beyond two kind of local inter intersectional struggles. Um, so, um, and I agree uh, on, on, on the interesting last comment on Marty in terms of the possible symbolic elements into what's the center of the celebration, what's the emphasis of the liturgical experience. Uh, if it's uh, if it's a proclamation itself, if it's the sermon as it has been the center after um, 16th century, um, or if there's um, all sort of different internal analysis of different liturgical uh, uh, theological elements that could contribute contribute in terms of focusing in ourselves or anthropologically uh, in ourselves as individuals, um, how to go beyond in a communal um, way um, as a communion or fellowship of individuals uh, in the glorification and worship of God, uh, as it has been for centuries. For example, for example, having the center of the liturgy, uh, the, 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 the Eucharist itself um, and some other possible elements uh, that could come to the conversation, certainly. Uh, we got a couple of questions on the chat that we didn't approach before. Uh, the first one, uh, what do you regard as being the principal differences between management as applied to a business and management as applied to a church? Uh, we have discussed it uh, maybe in a few ways, but if in a very concrete way, uh, or you want to emphasize um, a bit more, Rahel, on that. And there's another question in terms of the role of a pastor and the preacher. Can we separate those roles? Uh, for example, as mentioned earlier, Methodist local preachers have a role as preachers, but not as pastors. Uh, that's an interesting also kind of internal uh, possible uh, understanding and reflection um, to um, how do we experience or how do we identify ourselves when we call ourselves uh, or recognize ourselves in the role of, of preachers um, how does that relate or identify ourselves as pastor, pastors of a community? Um, I think the second question might be dialogue more within our internal uh, preacher 
circle uh, and then um, to Rahel's uh, research. But I don't know, Rahel, from the, from, the, from the first question, there is something that you would like to emphasize. And then we can get back a couple of more questions before we close this session today. And yeah, to the question of uh, principal differences between management and church and business. Um, I would say, I'm sure you would find books or I also know of research that would say, here's a handbook on church management. But I think in general, there should be, no, I, I think, so I believe management um, is, um, in itself an inherently um, like economic concept and it comes from business and I would doubt if it belongs in the church at all. And obviously you have to define then what are like just things of, mm, let's say stewardship and organizing that just happen wherever people come together. But I think the whole idea of management to make things more efficient and find the best way of doing things um, I think we have to remind us again that there is an idea that is only 120 years old, and I, I would, I would have a hard time to answer this question clearly because I think it's <laughs> my own opinion is um, management is something for, that belongs for me to business, and even there I would say we have to reflect what is what and how should we use it wisely, but that's not my domain, um, and. Uh, to the second question, um, I think, yeah, as Sam said, that's maybe more something um, you you can educate me on. But uh, I think in general, I was just thinking also of the divide in the Old Testament between um, prophet, king, and priest, and uh, all three were authorities, but they were like set up to tell to yeah almost challenge each other and very different spots and I think that's an interesting idea in general that kind of um, breaks with the idea of the like um, super able leader who has it all together that we in the church believe in the diversity of gifts and then you have obviously passages like in Ephesians where it's about the the apostle the evangelist um, the shepherd the teacher um, and this like I think it's always very healthy to know it doesn't need to come only from one person. Um, and then, yeah, maybe I think Marty has touched on that as well with his questions, like the question of um, is the, the idea of leadership is very much tied up with personality. And if we have a more liturgical way of being church and um, we're just, for example, focus on the Eucharist, which is something I'm given to give to pass it on and where it's where where it's more about the role and the place I fill in that most moment than the person I am and so I think there are all sorts of ways for how we can um, define leading the church more healthy than just concentrating it all on one person um, I don't know if that is helpful and please follow up <laughs> or challenge me on that You, you mentioned authority there, and that, and that was what came to my mind from, from, from Marty's question. 
because so much of what we're talking about in terms of leadership is part of authority within the church as an institution. And although I, I, I see what you mean about the, the, the Eucharist standing beyond um, personality, it is one of the most regulated parts of, of all, well, of many denominations as to who can, who is authorized to preside at the Eucharist. Um, and it, it, in, in, in Catholic tradition, it's, it's, it has to be male, um, ordained by a bishop, will be ordained by the Pope. So there you've got perhaps an archetype of a, of a, of a leader. In, in Methodism, there's, there's a separation of those authorized to preach from those authorized to preside at communion, although those things do come together in various um, not altogether logical ways. Um, so yes, yeah, so that, that, that the question of who is authorized to lead and who's authorized to enact the symbols of our faith, be those the symbols of the word or the symbols of the sac of sacraments, um, <laughs> blows wide a question which I thought I was beginning to, to get a handle on. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe maybe a good question to clarify what I see as the as the problem. Because the interesting thing is that we maybe also live in a in a time that challenges authority more and more. And I think what I um, mm, to me it's not so much about don't having any authority. And we have passages in the New Testament that introduce some sort of church hierarchies and bishops and teachers and and I think it's helpful to always see the own tradition also as something where things have grown and also could be different but I think what I um what I like oh, I think what comes um, together in the term leadership versus authority authority is more something that is given to me and I know that can also be problematic and we know all of in, about institutional and power abuses. So it's not that I say that's some, something that is inherently good and we don't have to talk about that. But I think um, what like, so interestingly, I come more from like very low church traditions <laughs> um, where, uh, where I feel like it's more the personality that someone brings with him or herself that enables the person to to be the leader um and it's and i think that's it's i think i have to also think more about the question <laughs> stuck here at the moment but i think that's yeah definitely also something we have to where, where i think the also scripture in our own tradition invites us to to wrestle with because i think reading the New Testament shows that there are, there are certain structures at work in the church, but at the same time, it's, we also, yeah, think that the spirit is giving gifts to everyone. So that seems to be, so the interesting thing is if we think too much in the idea of we have some people who are leading and the rest is just listening or following, it's almost like um, a de-skilling of the 
congregation where all, only certain people can do anything. And that I think undermines the community um, idea we have talked about earlier. Sorry, that was just rambling. <laughs> Maybe someone has other thoughts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rahel, because it has been really um, a kind of collaborative conversation where you have helped us to, to go uh, a lot deeper into what the your work and current research one is. of the uh, things uh, that was occurring to me just while uh, you were talking about that rahel and james um one of the big differences between going to work and going to church is that one is an activity that i must do to put bread on the table and the other one is an activity that i choose to do um, so when I'm at work, I will be managed and I am um, amenable to being managed because I would like to stay in my job. Um, at church, it's a little different. Um, if I'm not too keen on what I uh, see or receive or experience, then I am free to walk away, perhaps go to another church or even not go to church at all. So they are rather different environments. And uh, therefore, one might think that perhaps the style of leadership that works in one might not necessarily work in the other. Mm. And um, that, then my mind uh, went on to think about, well, where else is it that we get a people, a collection of people who are voluntarily in one place and yet are led by others. And um, I thought about the example, uh, the modern example of social media and the influencers and how successful that they've been uh, making money uh, through advertising uh, on, on uh, social networks and, and getting large followings of people who are all volunteers. Um, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> I was just thinking when you were reflecting on church today that it's also interesting how that might have changed over time because I think there were periods where you not could just choose another church or <laughs> Catholic church was the only one and um and the idea of leaving the church wasn't really an option <laughs> but that's just a side note um yeah i think um it's interesting because it kind of brings in um again the point that mm, yeah it almost because these influencer social media um world lives from being able to draw people in um and in this like society we live in where like faith and church have become an option it's maybe very um easy to see that next to each other and the idea like okay what can we do to draw people in and i think then it's interesting how we can then preserve that the gospel is still something that is not always appealing to people and also confronts us where it's just something that fulfills our needs and I think that's 
uh, maybe even bringing us back to the beginning. <laughs> Thanks for that. I think that's useful um, observation. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. Thank you, Rahel. And maybe we can um, give one minute still if there's one last question, one last comment uh, before we leave Rahel a couple of minutes in case she wants to summarize close up or just as a closure or conclusion part uh, for her to highlight um, the topic of this evening. So I wonder if there is not another question then um, Rahel, if you would like us just in two or three minutes, conclude some, something else that you think might be relevant for us to consider, reflect on, uh, or highlight just from what has been said before we get to the closure of tonight. Yeah, thanks again. Um, yeah, thanks for bearing with me. I, I know you uh, caught me totally in the middle of this project and there are a lot of open and still, but I think, um, so my project will hopefully have two parts in the end. And one is asking what happens to the church when we look on it too much with a managerial view. And the other question is what alternatives do we have to look on the church and on being a pastor? And I think there are just maybe the two questions of observation I want to leave you with for your own <laughs> like church life um, and, I think what, what I really deeply believe in is that um, our own tradition and scripture has a very rich language of talking about church and talking about a pastor. And we already hear, heard some of the things tonight, like being a servant, being a shepherd, um, maybe being a physician, <laughs> um, but also this like idea that we, we are a community led by people, but also led by the spirit. And I think um, rediscovering or digging deeper into this rich meaning, which we have inherited. Um, yeah, it's really an adventure. I hope you can continue. And um, yeah, thanks for your questions. Um, I also have noted some of the things and I'm excited <laughs> to follow up on them in the next weeks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rahel. Uh, it has been really helpful on this summarizing up on the different analogies that came up on during this hour, or why not even embrace ourselves on being a failure in the light of the leadership paradigm. Uh, so thank you very much. And I'm sure we would like to continue catching up, uh, hearing and learning more from the process of your own research into uh, what the whole PhD looks like in the following months. Uh, and we'll be happy to continue catching up uh, on this process and supporting each other, of course, as part of our divinity uh, community and brothers and sisters, Christians here in Aberdeen. Um, so getting to the last part and to the end of this Borderlands session, I'll get back then to James to share with us if there's there are any notices or any feedback or also uh, the date for the next uh, Borderlands session in a couple of months. I'll stop the recording now and then we'll go to the closure of the session by our Reverend James Garnett. Mm -hmm.